Hi, everybody. AJ here, producer of the show. Just letting you know that after the first part of this episode, something happened with Steven's recordings. So we had to uh, opt to use the backup recordings. Uh, the call quality is still fine, but it does definitely sound like it is on a video call. So forgive us for that. Uh, and we'll see you in the next one. Bye. Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilker. Right before we started, we were just talking about how there's like the air of an unhinged one uh, going on. And I think it, there's like a trifecta of reasons for that. I think number one is that we're recording earlier than we usually do. Yeah. Like an hour earlier than we usually do. So you and I are both like just waking up. Yeah, it's, it is 9.14 a.m. This is yeah. like slamming down a cup of joe before hitting the clock hours <laughs> punching in baby punching in punching in yeah. we talk about video games exactly. and then also weirdly i went to sleep at 9 p.m last night oh nice and woke up like right before we recorded uh so must i have needed it yeah right and i i don't know something about getting that much sleep is freaky to me and then we also like literally just before we started recording received a tweet from somebody who said that they stumbled into the cats 2019 episode <laughs> because they were wondering if we had ever talked about jedi fallen order which is oh, also man. the cats episode uh shout out to kelsey who just tweeted that at us that is a that is a bait and switch if isn't that the most one. incredible yeah. way of finding the cats episode <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting. I feel like uh, I like looking at what episodes from the early years are like still sought after. Yeah. Or accidentally have a gravitational pull. And that's right. one of them. Cats is one of them. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think people are stumbling into it because Jedi Survivor is about to come out in like yeah. a week or two. So sorry to everybody who uh, expects to hear about Jedi and instead hears about uh, Mr. Skimbleshanks. The Wadham heads out there trying oh, to get yeah, some content. Wad yeah, Wadham's in that episode It's a too. weird mix. You know what's funny too is like I think we assumed that Wadham was going to be the weird part of that episode. Yeah, and that was <laughs> the most like trip to the DMV level like, <laughs> like logistical. Oh yeah, it's good. It's fun. Yeah, it's it, looks, good. It, it looks pretty. Mechanics. I, yeah. I like the character design. Yeah. <laughs> I like cubes yeah <laughs> he's got a nice little hat all of that combined i think leads to the thing that i wanted to open this episode with which is i have seen super mario brothers the movie on the big screen not the one from 1980 whatever with bob hoskins and john leguizamo but instead the new illumination pictures film produced i didn't even know this but when it's when it opens there's like obviously the the nintendo logo that shows up first of all very weird to see like a marvel studios kind of like comic book flipping uh studio signifier but for nintendo that was yeah. bizarre <laughs> following that it says a shigeru miyamoto film oh wow he produced the movie he is the producer of the movie yeah isn't that amazing that is amazing you're right that he very much i mean nintendo as a whole but it is it is like it's interesting how i feel like a lot of people call miyazaki the like walt disney of japan and like you could not find a more opposite dude in terms of just like his commercial approach and like <laughs> yeah what was the name of that movie oh my uh, god kingdom of dreams and madness kingdom of dreams and madness yeah i mean all of those all of those like viral clips of him being like i hate this i hate this i hate yeah. this i hate this it's all from that movie there's a there's a scene where he's talking to his employees and he's like like, you know, 
companies are just conduits to make money. The reason you're here is to develop skills and make things that actually matter. If you at any point feel like you're not getting one of those things, quit because that's what I'll do too. And that's like, <laughs> can, you, can you imagine that being said at Nintendo or like <laughs> Disney? Uh, and this is not, you know, I'm not, I'm not villainizing uh, Miyamoto, of course, but he clearly is embracing the like, capitalist wonderland of it all yeah uh, in yeah. a way that that miyazaki would absolutely never dream of doing yeah so like there's a theme park and now there are movies which right, is wild right, exactly. um which actually I, i'm gonna be in la next week and i have like tentatively penciled in visiting nintendo land as like a, a possibility uh we'll see if we get another unhinged segment out of that but <laughs> All of that said, I have seen the Super Mario Brothers movie. Here's what I'll, here's what I'll say about it on a top level, because I know that you are like wholly uninterested in going to see it. Not not and to just to clarify, not in the way that's like I don't think it's like a a mean spirited thing. I just know I'm not the target audience. That's kind of how, how I feel currently. I could be wrong. Yeah. I just I think of this movie as like okay, like this is going to be fun for kids. I don't need to go like you know, yeah. to experience it, at least from my understanding of the movie right now. Yeah, I think you couldn't be more right about that. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think you are completely on the money. Th this movie has been more divisive than I was expecting in like multiple ways. I think, you know, the thing that everybody's focusing on is the Rotten Tomatoes score, which like, fuck that website entirely, yeah, first I, of all. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's like, I feel like any big conglomerate like that is is like a starting point. It's not an ultimatum. Yeah, you know? yes, yes. Um, yeah, it's, you know, the Metacritic of movies. It's it, not it, an ultimato, you know what I mean? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rotten, baby! I'm rotten! <laughs> Uh, this movie is listed as rotten at the moment. Yeah, it's at uh, like 50%, right? Yeah, it's at like 50%. But then the audience score is at like 98%. Yeah. Um, which, you know, there's a lot of discourse going on about like, do you even need an audience score on Rotten Tomatoes when the whole website is kind of like bankrupt in some ways? The, the vibe that I've been hearing from the people who are against the audience score even existing are like every single social media platform is the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's yeah, just right. another place <laughs> for people to review bomb or the opposite a movie you know and like harass people that's like the only reason the audience score exists uh that having been said i think the people who really love this movie are looking at the critic score being at 50 percent and being like what the fuck movie did you watch which i kind of agree with in some cases i feel like this movie is being graded in some ways as if it's supposed to be like the next big pixar film and yeah as right. soon as you sit down and start watching it it is like so clearly not that and my my takeaway from the movie as soon as i walked out was like I re there's a piece of me that really wishes that it was better. Like, I, I think knowing that Nintendo is trying to enter their Walt Disney era, you would hope that the first big movie they produce would be like actually really good. Yeah. You know, not just like serviceable and not just like, oh, wow, they pulled it off, which is what it is. But instead, like, oh, what if this was great? And I think that the disparity that I found between my own feelings about the movie and the reviews that I've read are I think the reviews are looking at it, at least the ones that I've read, are looking at it from the perspective of like, this should be a good movie and you should review movies. Like if your job is to review movies, you should review every movie hoping that it's going to be a good one, which I, I agree with. My feeling about it was less of like, 
I, I think I recentered my expectations within minutes because you kind of know immediately that it's not going to be that. Yeah. And I recentered my expectations to let's see if they do something interesting and they start to and they start to poke at some interesting stuff, which is really what I want to get into with you. They start to poke at some interesting stuff and then they don't really follow through on any of it. And that's that's the disappointment for me. The disappointment is less of like it's not a good movie and more like they just briefly touched on some stuff that completely rewired my brain and the way I'm going to think about <laughs> Mario for the rest of my life. And then didn't follow through on any of it at all. So now I'm just lingering with these like these like possibilities. I feel like the the eyeball and dredge. Uh, that starts like shaking as it gets closer and closer to night. I'm like that about Mario now. The first thing that happens is you see, uh, well, a after the intro where Jack Black shows up as Bowser and steals the superstar, which is the first thing that happens in the trailer. I'm not going to spoil the. Okay, hang on. Let me step back for a second. This movie is unspoilable. There's nothing that can be spoiled in this movie unless you consider spoilers to be references, unless you consider spoilers to be the painting that's hanging up in the back of a pizza shop in the beginning of the movie that references a different Nintendo game, then there is nothing that can be spoiled in this movie. If you've played a Mario game, that is the story of this movie. The story <laughs> of the movie is what happens in Mario. Guess what? Bowser's a bad dude and he's trying to overthrow the Mushroom Kingdom and Mario has to stop him. Like, that is it, man. Uh, that having been said... The way the movie opens when you first see the Mario Brothers is a commercial for Mario Brothers plumbing where they're doing the like classic game accents. They're doing like like they sound just like Charles Martinet. They're like really going for it. And then as soon as the commercial is done and, and the commercial is like goofy and, and stupid and bad and like looks really cheaply made and they kind of joke about how they spent their life savings making it and stuff. But then as soon as as soon as the commercial's over, they kind of zoom out and they start talking about how silly the accents were and like why they had to play them up for the commercial. And then you hear like Chris Pratt and Charlie Day's like normal accents that they're doing for the movie. All of that said, it immediately takes them back to their home where you meet Mario's whole family. And that's like his mom and his dad and his grandfather and some of his cousins. And they all look like Mario in different ways. And they're all deeply disappointed in Mario, not Luigi Mario. They're like, you are bringing your brother down <laughs> by wrapping him up in your silly plan to become the most famous plumber in Brooklyn. <laughs> and they're like dunking on him. Like, to his face, surrounded by the family. And Luigi's there just like eating pasta, kind of looking like worried about it, you know, as Luigi does. But just this idea that like we're getting an origin story for Mario and setting up these like interest, I think legitimately interesting thematic stakes where it's like he wants to like make his family proud and he feels very strongly about his family. All that stuff is interesting like that. If that had been the through line of the movie, that would have been really cool. <laughs> Because they start to continue to add weird little tweaks like that. And it feels like there was a longer version of the movie. The movie is 90 minutes, like exactly, wow. which is wild. Yeah. It feels like there was like a maybe a 100-minute version of this movie that actually tied all this stuff together. But when you eventually meet Donkey Kong... <laughs> That reminded me of what yes. we're talking about. <laughs> when you eventually meet Donkey Kong. Seth Rogen, right? Yes, who is Seth Rogen, who is not doing any kind of voice at all. It is just sure. Seth Rogen. I mean, that's that's his thing, yeah. One of the biggest laughs in the theater 
was this one shot where where Donkey Kong gets very close to Mario and just starts laughing and it's just the Seth Rogen laugh like totally unchanged and everyone in the theater lost their minds. <laughs> that was that was like the Cats 2019 moment of this movie for me. I think when everyone suddenly like their brains suddenly flipped to what they were watching. It was like, oh my God, that's just Seth Rogen. Yeah. Um, anyway, you meet Donkey Kong and he too is a disappointment to his father, Cranky Kong. <laughs> Because he's like, wait, Cranky Kong is his dad. I Cranky never knew Kong that. is his dad in the movie. Yes. Oh my god. And I think, I think in, I think, quote unquote, in Nintendo canon, that makes sense. I just never, I don't know why. I, I just assumed he was like a mean neighbor. I just, I didn't think they were directly related. Because <laughs> I think, I think the implication, if I recall correctly, is that Cranky Kong was the Donkey Kong in the original Donkey Kong. Yeah. He game. I, in in uh, Donkey Kong Country Two, Diddy's Conquest. He makes jokes like, oh, these controllers these days have too many buttons. Back in my day, it was one button, you know. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I like I like that connection. It's kind of fun. The whole deal with Donkey Kong is that he is kind of like a braggadocious showboating guy. He's like the most famous person in in the land of the Kongs. Um, <laughs> and when he shows up on screen, he's like just kind of like running around and, and like doing like peck dances and stuff and like riling the crowd up. But like actually is a huge disappointment to his father. So he just like keeps he keeps like, you know, sucking in the adoration of his fan base but every single time he does anything he turns around to like make sure that cranky kong approves uh which is bizarre like all of that stuff i think is really interesting and then you follow it with what i think is the most wild thing in the movie to me and is the thing that like really i want them to double down on or i wish they had in the movie but there's a moment where they address why peach is the only human in the mushroom kingdom which i was like fascinated by because that's the thing i feel like has just been kind of like on the top of of everybody's like prefrontal lobe <laughs> forever you know it's yeah. like why is this world filled with toads and bowser and, and like her. sentient mushrooms yeah. except for princess peach and they ha they have like a one-off line that alludes to maybe she also came from the human world which i think is like an amazing idea that they just like don't double down on at all or really interrogate they just ask the question and then move on because this movie has no time to linger on anything <laughs> because it's 90 minutes long and it's literally just set piece set piece set piece set piece and every once in a while there's like this fucking jimmy neutron brain blast moment that just like changes your entire outlook on nintendo's history and the canon of mario which again doesn't exist there is no canon of mario which i think is one of the reasons that this movie even being coherent is amazing because they're pulling from nothing <laughs> <laughs> like they're not yeah. they're not pulling from anything you and i've talked about this a lot but like especially in the super mario all-stars episode and the super mario 3d all-stars episode it's like how do you talk about mario you have to talk about the mechanics you have to talk about the joy you have to talk about just what it feels like to be mario in whatever game you're playing you're never talking about like the stakes of the narrative right yeah, that's kind of why i've been uninterested from the start and i also i mean not to be like a grinch about it but i i definitely share the sentiment that this like recent wave of movie adaptations of games just feels really boring to me like it just feels like i don't know like i i think there's i'm not against it in theory like i think there are games that i would absolutely love to see an adaptation of and i'm always interested to see like what people are going to try to do but they yeah. all just feel like very like corporate like pre-approved eight years ago ideas that are just like <laughs> there to be commercials for the other thing i know what you mean and, yeah. yeah so i just i don't know like i i I do think in some ways this was one of the wilder 
projects. I think like, you know, as as good as I hear The Last of Us show is, I'm like, I'm sure all these things could be great. I'm just saying like, it, it kind of goes back to um, when comic book movies were like a newer idea. And there was almost the sentiment that like, until a movie existed, the comic wasn't considered like high art, you know? Mm. And I just worry that that's kind of happening with games where it's like, until you get that HBO show, you know, you're not on the same level. Right. Or or the, the horrifying version of it, which is definitely what's happening in the podcast industry. I I, I know that for a fact is that podcasts are being produced with the expectation that they can sell the film or TV rights to that podcast down the line. Like that's that's the end goal of making podcasts for some large podcast studios right now. And that's my worst fear about video games. If we start to go in this direction is that people yeah. are going to start making games that are clearly emulating television or film in ways to just kind of justify their creation as a film down the line. And I feel like that's kind of what Sony is morphing their stuff into. Yeah. Like, I think like we're not there yet because all those games I think are still great. Like I've enjoyed all of them, but I, I do think there's something about some of those games that almost resent being a game. Yeah. You know, I think the last of us part one in particular is, is a, real touchstone for that like I, that that's that's the one where when it got announced as an hbo show and you and i talked about it a little bit on, on the podcast but when that got announced as an hbo show that was like oh yeah no duh because that that game always clearly wanted to be something that wasn't a video game i feel like there are obviously fun mechanics in there i don't want to take that game away from anybody who enjoyed it you enjoyed it but yeah when i play that game to me i'm like this is this is veering too much into the film side and not enough into the game side which as we've talked about a lot i feel like the sequel actually fixed like i think yeah. part two is like an amazing video game and an incredible story rolled into one. I think a lot of the sort of early 2010s, late 2000s, the technology now existed to be more cinematic. So mm -hmm. a lot of games were taking genuine inspiration from film and TV. And that's great. Like I like mediums getting inspired by other ones, I think is wonderful. Like I think, uh, you know, God of War 2018 trying to do the one shot thing like I think that's cool you know mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not trying to debase these games but I, I I think the mindset of like this is just fodder for an eventual movie is like oh man <laughs> right that sucks so yeah. anyway the the thing about the the last of us show which I don't think we talked about at all after it had come I out I haven't watched it yet yeah I, I want to I've heard I've heard it's wonderful I just haven't gotten to the it the thing about it like it is good and it's good because the story of the video game was good the thing that really rubs me the wrong way and I've seen some articles about this and I, I'm told I totally agree with it is like you hop on TikTok or you're on like Twitter or something and you see these uh, you see these shots or these like uh, compilation videos of side by sides between the game and the show and they're exactly one to one even down to like the line delivery from the actors and it's like if that's if that's what you're gonna do with the show then don't make the show you know if, if it's yeah. literally to remake the cutscenes one to one then don't do it that's, that's the, not an adaptation that's know? not an adaptation yeah yeah, right. yeah that's that's just like straight up a, a I don't know, like a copy paste situation. But there is an episode of the show, which I, I won't spoil for you if you haven't seen it, but there's an episode of the show. I think it's the third one where they deviate from the game like entirely and completely rewrite some of the characters that were in the game from scratch and change their entire motivation, their entire characterization. And it is the best episode of the show, like by awesome. far. It's yeah. like the one time they really, really, really deviate from what the game was doing and say, how can we improve upon the story of the game is when the show becomes its own thing. And, and also take advantage of it being a different medium, right? Yes. It's like, I think uh, Last of Us 2 especially, I think is very interested in like player control, mm -hmm. you know? And I think um, the, the way battles feel in that game is so overwhelming and like, uh, brutal. Yeah. And I think that that actually adds to the story in a way that it maybe 
would feel gratuitous if you were just watching it, you know? Right. Again, I think all this stuff can exist and be great, and I'm glad it's being received well. But it goes back to sort of games being taken seriously and like sort of the strength of each medium. Right. And why can't they be taken seriously as their own medium? And the, yeah. and going back to Mario, it's like the creative room in adaptation. Like I think the best adaptations use the source material as a starting point. Yes. And then go in their own direction. Yeah. You know, which like, again, that's that's my disappointment with the Mario movies that it starts to yeah. do it and then doesn't give itself enough time to actually explore that stuff. And, <laughs> and it prevents the movie from having like a thematic core to me or like real like heart and and uh, and making me care about the characters. Weirdly, the best example of this, uh, just to touch on that last point you made, is the Dungeons and Dragons movie, which is also out right yeah. now, which right. literally is, just, is wonderful. It's just taking the rule book of Dungeons and Dragons and like the the characters and creatures that are present in there and some of the more like basic story beats of some of the campaigns that you can get from those books and weaving it into this incredible, wholly unique idea that is, you know, not a thing that's touched on in any of the games, but feels like playing Dungeons and Dragons down to like there being a character who is wildly overpowered, who is clearly a stand in for the DM, who is like there's one sequence in particular. I won't spoil it, but there's one sequence in particular where like this character is explaining the rules of a puzzle and the party just fucks it up immediately, like within seconds. And it's like (laughs) that's that shit is brilliant. You know, that is that is what you want out of an adaptation like this. And it's I hope where this stuff is going. And it's weird to have the Dungeons Dragons movie and the Mario movie and the last of us show all coming out around the same time because if you had told me all of that in advance if you told me all that a year ago like all three of these properties are going to be released at the same time i would have them in almost the exact opposite order in terms of how i feel about them as adaptations of the thing that they're coming right. from <laughs> dungeons and dragons yeah. would be the one that i would be like absolutely fucking not and that one absolutely rules and is the blueprint for how you're supposed to do this i feel well i mean and talk about adaptation like the beauty of D is that everyone's campaign is unique so yeah. if they're taking it the opportunity like we're just going to make our own campaign that's a great idea yeah. you know yeah it really is i was also thinking about the critical reception to the mario movie and how like there are maybe some critics that are that are being harsher on it i i wonder if it's you know now that you've seen it and you you agree with my guess about the movie that it was largely made for like a younger audience in mm-hmm. mind and like them alone kind of i wonder if that stands in kind of stark contrast to the games which are purposely made for everyone mm-hmm. like you can like obviously the nintendo has a younger audience in mind for a lot of this stuff but like anyone can play and enjoy mario and zelda and kirby and like all these games are made truly for a universal audience so maybe it's like kind of a weird switch on a subconscious level that the movie is not as much interested in being for everyone. Yeah, the the person who enjoyed the movie the most in our theater was the little girl who was sitting a couple seats down from us who was losing her mind. And that's great. The other thing, too, I think <laughs> not to generalize, but I think there are a lot of 30 year old men that are angry when something isn't for them. And I just yeah, feel absolutely. like that's kind of like feels like what the Internet is built on. Yeah, right. It's like the minute this movie was announced. I'm like, even I am a huge Nintendo fan. I love Mario. And I know that this was not made with me in mind. Mm-hmm. No one, uh, no one involved in this production was like, what about the 30 year old guy who's really into Mario RPGs? What, what can we do for him? <laughs> that ship has sunk years ago. There's no there's, <laughs> didn't even sail. That's not, yeah, it didn't even sail sale uh so i'll get to it eventually <laughs> i just out of curiosity but um i'm glad kids are enjoying it yeah watch it when it's on netflix yeah, yeah. like whatever the thing is we we have so many movies that are like 
when we think back to like what are our favorite movies when we were you know younger than 10 and we can watch them now and be like oh that was not that great or that wasn't as good as i remember but they still mean something to us yeah and that's what this is that's you know for for younger kids like they're gonna have a nostalgic attachment to this and maybe it will inspire them to take it in a more interesting direction when they are eventually filmmakers you know like yes yeah. It's it doesn't have to be for 30 year old men because obviously Nintendo is going to keep making movies, right? Like they're not going to stop anytime soon. I feel like Nintendo is just going to become another kind of tentpole in the film industry, if I was to guess. I mean, yeah, I, again, I won't spoil it, but they do set up future Mario movies in this one, obviously, because they want this to go forever. Kamek's day off, baby. Can't <laughs> wait. He's great in this movie. I love Kamek. Yeah. Kamek is, I think, the Mario wiki lists Kamek as the arch nemesis of Yoshi which <laughs> I never really I never yes I never really fully picked up on that my friend I guess that's true I shared that with my friend Bobby and he was like imagine being like casting yourself as the villain to Mario's horse like it's like <laughs> where where are you on the villain hierarchy that like you sought out Yoshi as your yeah. as your foil that's very funny Kamek is the kind of character that would like monologue to the audience when Bowser walks off screen yeah. Love that kind of energy. Uh, yes. Does that happen in the movie? Yes. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Maybe I will like this. Maybe yeah. I'll love it. Yeah, yeah. you might. I'll, I'll be okay. Here, here's the thing. I, I was maybe going to talk about this later. Maybe not, but I, I have another show, another podcast I've been working on called Wavelengths, um, which I wasn't going to announce yet, but why not? It feels apt in the moment. But I had an episode of that show that I was working on where I was talking to our friend Dom Nero about it because he loves the Mario movie. He loves it. And I wanted to talk to him about why he loved it, how he felt as a person who reviews movies about the critical response and like how he thinks of himself as a film critic. Unfortunately, the the interview just like totally didn't work. Like the the actual like technical side of it just didn't work. So I can't release it, which is a bummer. Uh, But it was fascinating talking to him specifically about how much he loved that stuff, because it is, I think, exactly what you're touching on here is like, how can you not love that Kamek shows up and like does his full on like I am the right hand man of Bowser introduction, you know, before he even shows up on screen like that's that stuff is legitimately joyful. You know, there's there's a yeah. bit where where Bowser starts playing piano because he loves Peach so much and he just starts singing about Peach uh, and, and like that's great and like imagining their wedding and and Kamek like is kind of in the background like singing like that stuff is so fun and so good and, and you can't not love it. And, and I think that's again, is it a musical? No, it's just they have Jack Black. So, of course, there's going to be songs, you know, I feel like they should have really embraced like the full Disney musical of it all. That would be really know? fun. Yeah, that would be really fun. I, I mean, yeah. So Jack Black has two songs in it. Uh, the weirdest oh, well, thing yes. about it is that it has a bunch of needle drops that are all like like 80s rock songs that and I don't <laughs> I don't understand where they got that idea from. But like Thunderstruck is in there while they're doing Mario Kart. Uh, I need a hero is happening while Mario and Luigi are like beating the shit out of somebody at one point. Uh, <laughs> it's it, like a turn. Uh, yeah, I just, I just don't I don't know where they decided to throw all that music in. But anyway, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about on this front also is this idea that PlayStation also is making a bunch of movies, right? Like they had yeah. The Last of Us show, but they've also announced that they have greenlit a Ghost of Tsushima movie and I think also a God of War movie. Yeah. And they're also making and I again, this would be the last one that I would expect to be the most interesting, a Gran Turismo movie. Which the Gran Turismo movie, from what we know about it, because that one's been in the production or has been in production for the longest amount of time, is that it's about a, 
it's a, it's based on a true story. It's about somebody who actually was a professional Gran Turismo player, was like at the top of his game and then decided he wanted to get into actually racing real cars. Oh, wow. And that's a that's a cool idea for a movie. Like if you're telling me you're adapting Gran Turismo into a movie, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like it doesn't need to be Gran Turismo then. But taking that spin on it, that almost like meta layer of acknowledging Gran Turismo and its player base, like that's fun. That's a cool idea. And then you compare that again against what's probably going to happen with Ghost of Tsushima or God of War. It's like I've seen those stories and, I, and I've had my own version of those stories. And, and I don't know how a film adaptation will be better than the thing that I've created for myself. Yeah, because especially I think I think the strength of the first God of War or the 2018 God of War is yeah. we talked about this on the, on our bonus about it, but it's like that game is very happy to be a video game. Like, yeah, you know, not to keep talking about that angle, but like enemies exploding into power ups and stuff like that does add a little bit of levity to what is otherwise a pretty violent game. Yeah. And I do think just the, the unsaid like connection to a character just by playing as them is huge. And yes. I, and I think as a movie, I wonder if Kratos will be harder to empathize with because we're not playing as, mm. him. you know, right. just actually following a sad dad around is not as engaging <laughs> right. as playing as a sad dad. And when I think of Ghost of Tsushima, the stuff that stands out to me is not the main narrative, but is instead the moments that I spent like playing flute on a hilltop, you know, Ghost of Tsushima in my mind is sort of like the best execution of like an Assassin's Creed style game. Yeah. And I don't and, you know, obviously the the big selling point of that was this like Kurosawa inspiration and it was taking like a very cinematic approach and it's a beautiful looking game. But, you know, it's it's I'm not the first to say this. It's kind of ironic that this game is like this homage to Kurosawa. And then they're like, cool, now we're going to make it a movie just like Kurosawa. <laughs> it's like, OK, yeah. uh, interesting. It's, it's like Waluigiing the game, you know? <laughs> yes. It's like an echo of an echo of an echo. Yeah, it's really it's a really bizarre choice. And again, like it could be great. I think I think every project has potential. If there are people that are genuinely excited about it yeah. and have a story to tell. But I, I just think conceptually, I'm, I'm hesitant to embrace the idea. Yes, I think that's a good that's a good way of, of talking about it, because, again, this is all, you know, speculation based on just yeah. what we've heard in like PR blasts, <laughs> you know, like every movie can be great. And and to be clear, like I, neither of us are ever rooting against a game or a film to be good. You know, I would love if the God of War and the Ghost of Tsushima movies were both great. I think that'd be really fun. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it it's just a really hard tightrope walk to adapt a game like Ghost of Tsushima, which I think is like maybe the best example of this that is like built to be an open exploratory experience and saying we're going to throw that part out and just focus on the main quest. You know, yeah. it's like it's like saying, you know, only do the main quest in Oblivion and none of the other stuff exists. Yeah. The elephant in the room here, of course, is Advent Children, the best film ever made. And I wonder <laughs> Uh, that that to be completely honest that movie is like you know kind of junk food but like yeah i genuinely had a great time watching it and i do wonder if that adaptation or that movie worked on a level for i mean one i'm such a big fan of fo7 it could have been atrocious and i still would have wanted to see it mm -hmm. but i think the fact that final fantasy has basically always wanted to be a movie and like has always in in some entries put gameplay second to cinematics yeah i do think that transition to just being a movie makes 
more logical sense. Yeah. And I mean, also with the upcoming FF16, like, I think they found the middle ground of like, okay, it's not a movie, but it's a character action game, which is all about style and presentation. Mm -hmm. And now it's a, it's still a game, but it's a game that's driving force is sort of what's happening and, and the over the top nature of it. Yeah. Uh, versus, you know, stats and numbers. <laughs> you might love the Mario movie. <laughs> I love it. that's that's what this this is whole I I have all these hot takes but I'm just gonna be like yeah I had a great time I love Donkey Kong yeah walking away from this movie and thinking about the fact that Nintendo will probably make more I'm actually more interested in an eventual Metroid movie than anything else oh I, I think of all of the first party Nintendo IP that exists I feel like Metroid is the one that is most primed for a film adaptation and I think it would like make sense I liked your prime reference there yeah, I think Nintendo stuff is harder because they're also gameplay focused. Yeah, I feel like if you made a Pikmin movie, it would villainize Olimar pretty quickly. It's like he just shows up and <laughs> throws all these plant aliens to their death. This is horrible. It's very like uh, Sauron in Lord of the Rings in yeah. a way, just like <laughs> digging up the orcs from the lava pit. Yeah, right. <laughs> you work for me now. But uh, I think you're right that like, you know, I mean, the the drive, the one word that comes to mind with Metroid as a series is atmosphere. And yeah. I think you could do that in a movie. I know there's been a lot of talk about like eventually like the Zelda movie, I feel like is always like the thing on people's minds. Yeah, there was a um, Netflix show that was greenlit and then canceled. Like it's been kind of floating for a while. I think it's hard with Zelda because the the one big controversial thing is like, does Link talk or not? Right. You know, yeah. and the one time he has talk, we got uh, excuse me, princess. Yeah. Which, you know, is it's He's Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I mean, there was that um, short that was animated by the, the same people that eventually made uh, Kenna Bridge of Spirits. That was the Majora's Mask short. That was oh, really yeah. cool. I feel like if I would love to see like a fan made like full feature length majora's mask animation mm -hmm. that would be like the only thing i really want to see otherwise i'm like we don't really it sounds cool but then when you actually start boiling it down like do, what what would be done with this you know yeah. like yeah. as a big fan of like the world and the lore of it like it could be cool to explore in that way i think you're right to kind of single out metroid as like maybe the one that could also work yeah and elite beat agents and elite um, beat agents yeah of course yeah yeah those two uh you want to take a break i would love to we could talk about just games yeah, I would love to watch the Mario movie real quick and then, then we'll come back. <laughs> I wish I wish that we could do that. <laughs> I wish we could do that. I'll just watch Advent Children real quick. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Steven, we're back. Hey. I just want to say that one of my favorite moments of the Mario movie was uh, <laughs> anytime the theater got quiet, that little girl I was talking about would go, Mario? Like out loud. <laughs> and everyone in like it's a adorable. three row radius would lose their minds laughing at it. It was awesome. Yeah, she, she was having the time of her life. Uh, I usually, uh, for kids movies in particular, I'll usually go to like the latest screening I can just so I can like drink and have a good time usually. Yeah, um, right. But uh, I, I was surprised at how many kids were there. Like it was a sold out screening. There were a lot of kids at the 930 p.m. screening wow. uh, on a weekday, which I was kind of surprised by. It's almost like when I went to go see Venom and it, it was the 11 o'clock p.m. screening and it was filled with babies. It's one of the <laughs> only times I've ever walked out of a movie because it, there were just so many screaming babies in the screening of Venom, <laughs> a rated R film, which I was That's like, so funny. blew my mind. There's one kid in the front, not a baby, notably a mm -hmm. kid in the front with an iPad 
brightness at max like in the front <laughs> row <laughs> so no matter where you were in the theater you could see this you kid had to see his ipad yeah. yeah i i waited for the moment when uh he ate a live lobster in a french restaurant uh and then was like all right i'm out and then i watched it at home <laughs> like two years that's, later that's the rosebud of the movie really <laughs> it really is anyway you want to talk about video games and not cinema to. we're not eye of the duck over here yeah exactly we're sick of this shit Moving uh, pictures get real. I uh, texted you early this morning and said I have a secret segment for you um, because I just completely on a whim. I don't know. I don't know what really compelled me to do this, but I picked up a game that I know you've played and didn't talk about on the show, uh, and that is Valkyria Chronicles. Oh my god! Oh my god! Okay, I'm <laughs> so excited. So for those, if you've listened for a while. I've mentioned this in passing. It's never been like a main bit, but I've mentioned many times that I played Valkyria Chronicles, like a good amount of it years ago yeah. in, in the, in wanting to bring it to the show. But for whatever reason, it just, it always got bumped because we decided like, okay, what, what's like a good order. What's like a good stack for the episode. Yeah. And it's too much time passed. Like it's always been in my back pocket, but I never, you, you've on, you've broken the seal. We can finally yeah. talk about yeah, it. I, yeah. I, I wanted to unearth, your opinions about Valkyria Chronicles. Um, this is a game, if you don't know about it, uh, it's by Sega, came out for the PS3. Um, there's been a couple of them since then. I think four is the most recent one, uh, which released on the Switch a couple of years ago. Um, but the first one also got ported to Switch, the, the PS3 one. E- even when you when you download it on your Switch, it says Valkyria Chronicles for the Nintendo Switch, which I think is funny. But uh, <laughs> if you don't know about this game, it's really fascinating and connects to a game that I could not believe it connected to. Um, but it's essentially a, a tactics game uh, in the style of, I don't know, I, kind of nothing, actually, kind of just well, like Valkyria XCOM Chronicles. would be the closest. Oh, yeah. X, XCOM yeah. is, a, is, a, good, is yeah. a good connection. Um, so the whole idea is while you're in combat, you're kind of seeing a bird's eye view, which is like a, a hand drawn map beautiful. of the area that you're that you're fighting in. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and you can see little icons that represent your characters that you can control and also where the enemy characters are laid out almost on this like it, it's like um in any any World War II movie that you've ever seen where there's like a war room where they're like kind of pushing pieces around this big map in the center of the room. That's what you're looking at here. And that's how you're deciding who you're gonna play as. And in every turn you're given a certain amount of action points. And that allows you to go and select a character. And when you do that, it zooms down into like an over the shoulder kind of third person view. Um, very honestly, very like modern looking kind of experience where you play as that character and you get to run around and you can only run so far and you can hide behind objects and then you can, you know, aim and shoot your gun at the enemies. Yeah. And if you run in, if you're not in cover, if you're like in an enemy's line of sight, they'll fire on you at, or fire at you as you walk to your next goal right so So a lot of the game is finding cover and knowing like when to move yeah you need to be really cognizant of enemy line of sight uh at all times essentially uh lest you start just taking damage while just trying to move your character it is exactly like codename steam on the the 3ds I didn't realize this, but Codename Steam really is just pulling directly from Valkyria Chronicles in terms of its gameplay, like down to the meter that runs out as you continue to run around the space, uh, the ways in which uh, your characters attack when it's not their turn and vice versa, things like that. It is it was so funny to start playing the game and be like, oh, my God, I know exactly how to play this game already because I've done it as Abe Lincoln. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, I would say too. Like, I mean, I love that it connects the codename Steam, but I would say like XCOM meets Fire Emblem would be like my elevator pitch because yeah. it has sort of an anime art style. And I don't know how far how far are you into it? Uh, I just finished chapter two, so I'm okay. like I'm like I, I think it's just under two hours in. I haven't played it in a while, so my memory is a little bit foggy. But from what I remember, the story is largely like I think it's called Europa or something. Like it's yeah, basically Europe. It is. Yeah. Um, and it's essentially like very much world war ii era in terms of like the fashion and weaponry and stuff mm-hmm. um maybe maybe closer to world war one it's a little bit like they they call it europa war two yeah so <laughs> maybe it's pretty explicit it's literally ew2 in, in in the game and you you play as from the perspective of these characters that like are in like a neutral country that kind of gets dragged into war and i yeah. remember a big focus of the game is sort of about like who these people could have been and, and should be if they weren't like drafted into this this is the most fascinating part of the game for me yes. yeah which I really, I really liked. I think sometimes it's at odds with the tone because like the main character, there's two main characters, a girl with brown hair and the guy with uh, glasses who's like a poet or something or yeah, a photographer. He, he, he's an artist. He wants to be a teacher. He's an artist. It comes into like, I feel like the message of the game clashes with like the fact that he's also like a great general and everyone's like, fuck yeah, dude. Like, yeah. He like knows how to drive a tank. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I really did love that focus and not, not really a huge spoiler, but eventually, like, I would say the first handful of missions are sort of like Advanced Wars-esque, where they give you, like, a very small amount of units, and you have to make it work. And honestly, it's really hard early on. Like there's, yeah. there's a level where, like, four of your characters have to take on, like, a tank. and That's the and one I just finished. Yeah. What I really love, too, is that they really make... Like you feel the stakes of anything that's above like infantry. Mm-hmm. Like, if there's a tank, like it's actually scary. Yeah, even in that level, the the way it opens is it's it's uh I think Alicia is her name, and then yeah. two just like random watchmen in the town. Yeah. Uh, so you don't even have like the other main character at your disposal, and it's just the three of them against a tank and a shock trooper who is like an infantryman with like three or four times the health of any normal dude, and also has a fully automatic machine gun he's like basically unstoppable yeah. and then they start swarming you with regular guys on top of that and you literally just have the three of you so eventually once you've done like i think you're a mission or two away from this but you kind of get like a home base sort of like a garrick mock situation mm-hmm. um and you can recruit a bunch i don't know if they're procedurally generated but they're sort of like fire emblem filler characters where like you you get to assemble a team of like 10 people that's fun um and there's sort of different there's sort of like a weapon trial triangle of units so there's like and again it's been a while since i played now i want to play it again you made me want to go back to it (laughs) but there there are units that are like their whole role is to take out tanks like they just have like oh cool um like sort of missiles and like they're not really like they're really slow and they're not really that useful but they're there to like take out the tanks Mm -hmm. then you have uh you know units that are like medics or engineers so that's all interesting but what's great is on top of that every character has like a little brief bio of like who they were before the war. So I remember there's a character who like was a dancer and like men get nervous around her or something. So like if you have her next to units that are of the opposite sex, they like get a buff in some way, or there might be characters that like, grew up in the city. So they actually perform better in urban environments than like in the grass. That's interesting. 
so there's all these really specific it reminds me a little bit of darkest dungeon where like for those who don't know in that game like it's it's more negative in that sense because as you play your adventurers start to lose their sanity so like uh they will gain kind of negative perks of like oh this person like can't be trusted with money and might spend it all like at at the town when you go back or they might like start seeing things in this game like there are some negative ones but it's they really go out of their way to add mechanics to aid a sense of character, which mm. I appreciate. Like some of them really are cool. kind of silly, but I think like that that game's central theme of like these are all people with their own stories. And there's also permadeath, which is kind of the fire emblem connection. Right. I think um the two leads can't die. So similar, like if you're important to the story, you know, we can't go on without you, but like everyone else can. And and it's it's a pretty tense game because it's 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 fairly difficult and you need to know a lot of different systems and every move feels really tense but i I remember really liking it i remember i played it because early on in the discord there's this ongoing thing in the discord of people voting on what are like the the 10 games that represent like into the aether and also the discord the most Mm. and valkyria chronicles was up there uh in in early drafts of even though neither of us had played it they're like yeah this just feels like a game steven and brendan would would resonate with uh and they're right they were right yeah (laughs) did you play four also no i've only played the first one Mm. um and i really i I think it's a great game i I don't i don't really know why i stopped i think i just played enough of it to like have something to bring to the show and then i got pulled away but Mm -hmm. um i i kind of got to the point where the game really lets you like compose your team in a creative way yeah um so i might like i have not hit that point i'm excited to i would recommend getting to that point um, cause I think that's where the game kind of begins in some ways, but yeah. I remember really liking the characters too, especially, um, Alicia, uh, I think is her name. I, I, I remember liking her a lot. Yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm really happy you played it. Yeah. I, it's, love... re- it's really good. I, we didn't, yeah. we haven't even talked about this, but the art style is unbelievable. Oh yeah. It's kind of watercolors, right? Yeah. It's it's like yeah. watercolors filling in sketches, like, like yeah. notebook yeah. sketches, which I guess leads to that one character who is an artist and is sketching in his notebook all the time. But you should go, if you haven't seen this dear listener, you should go online and just like, look at screenshots of this game and just see what it looks like because it's it's actually kind of amazing that it looks like this and i think from what i've seen at least in the development history the the first game this one in particular um was kind of built from the ground up to be a tactics game that was just more visually dense and more ambitious than any tactics game had ever been and i think they kind of nailed it in terms of just like having a visual aesthetic that i have never seen before while also uh having like a really striking and interesting narrative with great characters on top of having also like great mechanics i just i just think this game kind of has everything um and, and i'm excited to play a lot more of it uh, and it runs beautifully on the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, it's 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 great. This is one of the earlier purchases I made. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed playing it in handheld and on in docked. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I, man, I don't know why I've been sleeping on it for so long. We've, we've been busy, but yeah. still. Uh, I so as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to L.A. for a week and uh, I'm I'm probably only going to bring my switch with me, I think is my plan. And I think I'm going to play a lot more Valkyria Chronicles is my plan. I'm curious to see if we should check out if you're if you dear listener are a fan of this series and you feel strongly that we should check out other entries, too. Please let us know. Yeah, I don't know where two and three are available. That's my big that's my big question. But four is also on the switch. And I've heard that four is great. Yeah. Uh, so I I just to add a, a question to that question, but if you, dear listener, know if we can just skip to four, like I would love to just like play one and four because they're both on the Switch. Um, I 
is that is that is that allowed? <laughs> is, that allowed? is this a trail scenario where yeah. I have to do three trilogies before I get to the thing? Right, exactly. Uh, but I'm just gonna focus on the first one for now, and then I'll, I'll I'll figure out four later. Yeah, the first one's awesome, and I think it could sometimes tonally clash. But I think like a lot of Fire Emblem games have sort of a pacifist message to them, even though they're war tactics games. Yep. I think the f- the fact that this game is using modern weaponry. I think makes that message hit harder. I think so too. But there's something about the the pacifism and and the the depiction of war uh, in the game feels heavier and and more meaningful when they're like fighting for peace. Yeah, it's a little bit too real at times. I yeah, think, even though it's yeah. obviously you know very uh, very cartoony. I think in in its, yeah. in its aesthetic, um, there there are moments of the game both in gameplay and in cutscenes. Uh, which I, th- I think is really striking where I'm like, this is a bit much even like yeah, when, when the I, tank first rolls up, it's like horrifying, you know? Yeah. And I remember there, there are a lot of cutscenes that kind of get cut abruptly short by like that. <laughs> there's a, I think, um, excuse me, one of the reviews of fire emblem engaged joked that every cutscene is like people talking in a field and then going like, Oh no bandits. And then yeah. a fight happens <laughs> but like in Valkyria Chronicles, like when, when the moment of peace gets like harshly cut off by moments of violence, like it does feel like too real in, yeah. in, a, in a way that's interesting. Yeah, because you, you do. And I think this is I think I think this is a, a strong point for really any narrative at all that has any kind of high stakes uh, and, and like combat like this. But there is a lot of time spent on just the serenity of at least like the starting town that I've seen in the, in the first two chapters, uh, it's called Brule, but just like the vibe of Brule is this beautiful kind of open field land dotted with, um, what are they called? Windmills, um, which are, I, I think just for like harvesting grain and stuff. And it's gorgeous. And when you start to see that place get ravaged by the war front, it's really, really upsetting. Um, it, it, is, it, yeah. it reminds me a lot of, uh, what you and I talked about a lot with Dragon Quest 11, where yeah. you're just like so endeared to that world. The idea that there's like a big, bad, evil person who's going to try and just destroy it and turn it all into like volcanic rock. It's really upsetting. And yeah. you want, you want to fight for it. And you kind of feel the same way here where it's like, as you mentioned, you're just this little village kind of in the exact midpoint between two huge factions that are at war, just a really unfortunate placement, you know, and a really unfortunate place to be. It's great. It's really cool. It's a, I'm it's really a, it's glad a good you game. Like it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, please uh, report back once you get to the like uh, military base part of it. Um, yeah. I, I do think the game benefits from having kind of a long setup to that, though, because I think there's a lot of like classic refusal of the call moments with the main cast, mm-hmm. because it's also like they're from what I remember too, they're kind of exploring the dangers of neutrality too, where it's like this, you can't hide from what's happening in the world. You yeah. Know? Right. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. I definitely will go back to that. I also love the way they use the newspaper to report like yeah. the story beats. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's really fun. The, the, the way the menu works is you're just kind of given this newspaper. And uh, as you continue to unlock cut scenes and other battles that you can do, it like fills in the photographs on the newspaper and you kind of highlight the photographs to go and jump into them uh it's a really really cool really cool system uh just yeah overall great game uh i'm really excited to play a lot more of it it walks the codename steam could trip over and fall (laughs) (laughs) i also i i've been wanting to play xcom for for years i think i have the first or second one those are on switch aren't they i don't know if they are let me look that up two is on switch oh my god it's on sale for seven dollars yeah they're on sale quite i'm gonna buy it right now and i'll play (laughs) i'll play when i'm in la Hell yeah. We'll have a, a 
a tactics section. Yeah. But uh, XCOM 2, similar thing with uh, like the Valkyria Chronicles character traits. From what I know about XCOM is like there is like sort of a procedurally generated characters that have like unique quirks to them. Mm. Uh, and there's also, I believe, permadeath. So there's like a sense of like losing. It's sort of like Into the Breach where you've invested like so much in that one pilot and then you lose them and you're like, no. Yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, Valkyria Chronicles, I'm, I'm so happy it finally got its moment in the spotlight more on that soon we'll bring it back eventually uh i, I definitely want to hit that that garrick mock moment you are also playing a game that i've wanted to hear about for a while yeah. uh I, I specifically wanted to hear your take on it before i checked it out myself <laughs> yeah i've been playing soul hackers 2 which came out last summer uh and it is a it's in the larger shin megami tensei series but it's a sequel to the original soul hackers which is part of the devil summoner uh, split off of SMT. Although from what I've read, it seems like it's not really that interested in being a sequel or part of that split off. So it kind of feels like it's its own game. And I wonder if maybe it should have been just like titled something new. Yeah. That's but interesting. This game came out. I remember like there was sort of buzz around it in the like SMT community. And, you know, for those who don't know, persona originally was a split off of SMT, but has now kind of become like by far their most popular flagship series in in the SMT media franchise. So it's kind of interesting to see like Persona take the spotlight and SMT kind of figure out what it's doing alongside Persona. Mm. So my experience at this point is is I, I have a decent amount of time with a lot of the SMT games and there are like the numbered entries. So we we've brought to the show SMT three Nocturne. Um, that was actually my first like proper SMT game, yeah. which I would not recommend starting with that one. <laughs> I do want to go back now that I'm like more well-versed in it, but that was kind of a rough one to begin with. Yeah, um, I agree. Then I played SMT five, which came out a couple years ago and I really loved that one. That one I think does probably the best job, like a teaching you the mechanics that are kind of shared in some way across every entry of this series, even persona. Um, and B, I think it also showcased what SMT is doing unique to Persona, because mm -hmm. in my mind, a lot of the the numbered entries of SMT usually are much darker in tone uh, and they're usually more interested in ideas than in characters and story. Mm -hmm. So I think the best SMT games give you like a really strong sense of atmosphere and some fun, like philosophical questions to chew on. And amidst all of that, the central appeal of, of SMT is the dungeon crawling and essentially recruiting these demons to fight alongside you. And then you can fuse them together to create stronger ones. Um, and what I really love about playing a lot of the other SMT games, you know, in doing the DS episode and, um, the 3DS one too. There's so many Atlas games for those two systems, especially right. in the SMT universe. And I appreciate that they, they, well, it's almost the middle ground between what we talk about with Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, where Dragon Quest adheres to sort of a, a similar formula each time. And Final Fantasy is like a new series every entry. Yeah. SMT has been using in some ways the same battle system since the Famicom, but they do kind of dramatically change up what angle they're coming in with. So for context, like in SMT four and five and three, you play as the main character and you recruit demons to fight alongside you. So the best pitch I can say is like, it's like if you were a Pokemon trainer who fought alongside your Pokemon. Mm -hmm. um, right. 
Whereas in Persona, every character has like a set persona that is like their that's like their move set, their stats, and then the main character can use multiple personas and fuse them together. So it's sort of like one character is playing SMT and everyone else is playing <laughs> Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Soul Hackers 2 is interesting because it takes the persona approach, but it still lets you choose what character is using what demon. It reminds me of um, the Devil Survivor games, which were like tactics games that use SMT combat, which were really interesting. I really liked that approach, and I kind of liked those games too were also kind of doing a little bit of persona with like um, the character relationships and and sort of just the focus on the cast. Mm-hmm. So all that to say, Soul Hackers 2, I feel like, had this buzz around it, and then it came out, and it didn't really sell super well, and the reviews were kind of average. And as always, the fan base was very divided on it. It seems like unless it's Persona, people are like always 50-50 on the next SMT game. Mm. But I, I didn't really know much about it. I didn't really have a strong interest in checking it out. It wasn't until I saw that it was on Game Pass that I was like, oh, maybe I'll play that. Because I saw like there were a handful of glowing reviews yeah. that I'm like, I... I've enjoyed just experiencing what this series has to offer and sort of the more experimental under the radar entries that I want to see what this game is doing unique to itself. And I am really having a great time with it. I'll say with Soul Hackers 2, it doesn't put its best foot forward. The game has pretty serious pacing issues early on where like you're getting a lot of story and the story is like kind of silly and very much like the world's going to end unless we do this thing. So I think it's like kind of easy to write the game off immediately. But once they introduce the main character who's named Ringo, she's just so funny and like a really refreshing take on an SMT protagonist because she is essentially there's this, you know, classic SMT sort of dystopian technology has plateaued and humanity is like stuck. And there's a group of people that want the world to end. And there's a group of people that don't want the world to end. And in the middle of all that is this super intelligent computer that is like, Hmm, we've been neutral this whole time, but like maybe we should actually help to prevent the end of the world. (laughs) So we're going to make two robot people to like help the devil summoners prevent this from happening. And it's Ringo and Fig are the two robots that are created. (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, And what I like about Ringo is that she like is clearly like self-aware and like poking fun at the ridiculousness of the game in a way that's not too meta. Yeah. But she just has sort of the personality of like Hilda where she's just like Ringo's sense of character, I think, is really fun because I think usually in SMT, the protagonists are kind of bland like player surrogates and she has like immediately this fun sense of character that is on one hand kind of aloof and like she's because she is this like neutral robot in this world she doesn't seem to really care one way or another about like what happens to people and is kind of just getting used to like what she considers to be arcane like having a body to her is like she uses the term like it's as if I'm like a super intelligent computer forced to be in a grandfather clock. <laughs> and so there's this sort of resentment of being like in a body and being like a humanoid person. Yeah, um, that's very interesting. It's really interesting. And it's she's like genuinely very funny and like a likable character. And they're already kind of having fun with her finding her humanity, which is a very classic thing, like a robot character, you know, discovering 
their humanity, but it's not done in, in the way it's usually done where their sense of character is kind of blank at first. Mm -hmm. Like she already has a very defined sense of character um, and is someone who like isn't, isn't rude, but isn't really familiar with how to connect with people, which I think makes the sort of attempt at doing a persona like, support level with other characters feel more meaningful because it is actually her learning how to connect with other people. I love that. So Ringo's like introduction kept me going. And then the actual game I think is really onto something with their approach to combat. So it is a little bit more persona E where again, like it's the cast kind of information and they each have one demon assigned to them. And usually in SMT or in persona, it's based around using moves that are super effective against an enemy. And then you get to go again. So you like get to manipulate the turn order in this game. You don't do that, but every time you use a move that the enemy is weak to, it keeps track of it in a numbered stack and once everyone on your team has taken their turn Ringo will do what's called a Sabbath where she like (laughs) fires a gun in the air and all the demons do like an all-out attack to the enemy based specifically on how well you were able to do the type matchups on your turn is that exactly yeah so it's like if, if you used a move that the enemy was weak to three times, then the Sabbath at the end of your turn will be three demons that go and attack and do a bunch of damage. That's very cool. So you're kind of like preparing how effective the Sabbath will be (laughs) at the end of your turn. Um, And I'll say too, there clearly was an attempt to make this be like a good first entry into the series. Like Mm. I think it, it has a darker tone and an adult cast, which I think separates SMT from Persona, which is usually usually a little bit of a lighter tone and a teenage cast and sort of more of a coming of age narrative. Um, this is already kind of wanting to be like, um, a more mature story in some ways, but it's not quite as off putting as like some of the earlier entries where they really lead with like it being kind of edgy. Yeah. Um, apocalyptic. Yeah. Right. So they do a good job. I think it, I mean, it does take a while. I think, I think the game does lose a bit of appeal by the fact that like the first handful of hours are essentially a tutorial. But I think if you're brand new to this combat, or maybe if you've only played persona and aren't quite as familiar with that, with SMT, I think that this is a great way to teach things. Cause they, they give you enough time on certain ideas that I consider like important to knowing like the base of how SMT operates. Mm. And the gameplay is largely like dungeons that are sort of labyrinthian. It's sort of like an Etrian Odyssey thing where you run around as Ringo, get into fights. Um, and what's also kind of interesting is they've taken an approach to demons where they're a little bit more interactive. So you can choose to let your demons explore a dungeon and they'll just be in various parts of the map and you can talk to them and they'll give you items. As you use the demons more, you're also kind of befriending them more too. That's cute. Which is, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit, I mean, truly demonic because they're demons. So they'll be like, I killed someone to get this. No, just kidding. You know, so like they still kind of have a mischievous <laughs> presence. But yeah. What's really working for me in this game, I think the the pacing and the story are like fine to bad. Like I think that <laughs> I imagine a lot of people probably started this game and bounced off just because it takes so long to get going. Mm. But once it does, you're given like 
a lot of various dungeons to explore. You have like a safe house where you can hang out and level up sort of the support side of things. How long would you say that is just to temper my own expectations for when I probably check this out? I would say, in my opinion, the game doesn't really show its full self until like two or three hours into it. Okay, that's by uh, persona standards. That's not (laughs) that bad. (laughs) And actually, the whole the whole game is like around 40 hours if you do like everything. So it's a great sizable thing and i don't know i'm really enjoying the cast the the vocal performances with the characters are really good and they really endeared me to the cast right away and i really like their approach at dungeon crawling and at the combat like it it feels like a really fresh take on what is a really tried and true formula so i think if you're a fan of that like i've seen a lot of divisive response to it and i feel like in my opinion, this game didn't really get set up to succeed very well because it was a sequel to a game that came out in the late 90s that, you know, I imagine has like a bit of a cult following. So I feel like for that fan group, seeing it be such a departure from the original might be off-putting. And I just feel like this maybe would have benefited from being the beginning of another spin-off series. Um, and I've seen some reviews kind of comment that this game doesn't really have a strong sense of identity because it's kind of taking bits and pieces from like Persona and Devil Survivor and Devil Summoner. And it's also a sequel. And I think that's true. But I do think what the game is doing mechanically and with the cast feel really fresh to me and, and are, are reason enough to check it out. Mm. Um, so I'm. I'm definitely going to keep playing it and I'm I'm enjoying it way more than I expected to. And I'm glad I gave it a little bit more time to get to where it is now, because I do think it's like, again, this is on Game Pass. I imagine people will try it and be like, eh, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but if you get like to the point where you get to the safe house and then you have a little bit more freedom to like take on quests and and do battles your own way, I, I've really been enjoying that part of it. This sounds like the kind of thing I'm going to love playing on xcloud specifically like yeah th- this feels like a really good candidate for a game that i'll play on my retroid or something from what i've seen too it shares a lot of the same staff who did tokyo mirage sessions which i think was also an attempt at making like now you're speaking my language it's like here is you know persona is the most popular version of smt but i think there have been attempts to make like what can we do to make an SMT spinoff a little bit more welcoming? Yeah. You know, mechanically and in tone. Tokyo Mirage Sessions, I think, went the extra step being like really bubbly and like almost kind of Persona 4-y. This is definitely more like cyberpunk and a little bit more dour, but I think the cast and the dialogue bring a little bit more levity to it. Yeah. Um, And it seems to be kind of poking fun at recurring tropes of the series in a way that I appreciate. Like the fact that it's the end of the world, no one really takes too seriously Mm. uh which i think is fun uh let me just give another shout out to tokyo mirage sessions a game that i really 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 loved and is available on the nintendo switch yeah and you i think you enjoyed that because it was like a a more streamlined approach at the battles so i think i think you might also really like selectors too yeah um continuing your hot takes in the smt world (laughs) i uh i didn't play the first one um i mean obviously not the like original original but even on the 3ds um i didn't play that version either uh but i'm glad to know that i could just hop into two that that's that's good to know yeah. And I mean, I might be missing something. I, I'm sure there are some connections, but it, it seems like it's a pretty self-contained story. Yeah. Um, the, the plot is basically like there are five bad guys and you have to stop them before the world ends. But I think what's more interesting is Ringo's like 
discovery of self and like what that means you know like yeah i mean this is my my like achilles heel for uh stories for character development in general is the android that wants to be human that's like my favorite shit in the world so i'm yeah and like even before she has her humanity she's like already kind of cocky and like rude which i love like that's (laughs) so yeah i would i would recommend giving it a shot i think it deserves i i get where a lot of the critiques are coming from and i think it helps that i went in not expecting this to be like the next big thing for smt right um but i do think there's a lot that i think there are a lot of ideas and a lot of things they're doing that i imagine will be incorporated into what is what is the next big thing yeah you know i think that this is i think time will be kind to this game i think it's gonna like be under the radar for now but maybe eventually have a following of its own mm. i feel like we um we should have brought Sonic to this episode now that I'm looking <laughs> at it because we have the Mario movie. We have two Sega games. I feel like we should have done Sonic and then Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Anyway, that's Soul Hackers 2. Thank you, Sega. Thank you, Sega. Uh, let's, let's take a break and come back and talk about more stuff. Sounds good. Bye bye. Like what Sonic and Mario are doing in Tokyo <laughs> in 2020. <laughs> Steven, I feel like in the spirit of this episode, I need to start this segment also with a Super Mario Brothers, the movie update for you. <laughs> OK, there up? is breaking news, uh, which is that the Super Mario Brothers movie scoring one hundred ninety five to two hundred million dollars uh, in its opening domestic weekend has it on pace uh, to be one of the top 10 domestic box office opening weekend films ever. Wow, that's amazing. How much yeah. was what was the budget? Do we know? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but Still. it has already made more in its opening weekend than The Lion King. Oh, wow. The the, the remake? Or oh, I the... don't know, actually. That's a good question. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's the original. Either way, movie. I mean, both both are one of the highest grossing films. Yeah. So uh, that's amazing. Pretty wild. So I, I think it is, you know, regardless of the Rotten Tomato meter. It's doing uh, pretty well. <laughs> yeah, the bank account says it's doing great. I love that the the Sonic and Mario rivalry is almost coming back with the movies. I am you know? very in favor of it. And I would bet anything we get a crossover within the next five years. Yeah, that has that. that I imagine that will happen. Don't you think? I yeah. mean, honestly, Sonic and Mario at the Olympics, the movie is maybe that would be one I would watch. Yeah, yeah I, I would go. I would definitely go to see that. The big the big disparity, though, is that the Sonic the Hedgehog movies are bizarrely live action. <laughs> <laughs> True. So you would need to do like a like a who framed Roger Rabbit experience to get yeah. these two to cross over. Yeah. Or you can. Yeah, you can have a, a what was that weird crossover with Jimmy Neutron and Fairly Odd Parents where they transitioned between two and 3D. Oh, my God. Yeah, I forgot about that. It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I like both shows, but that that combo made me feel. And that was also a show like if I was home from school sick, that was what was on. I was uh. Yeah. I saw that they're bringing the Fairly Odd Parents back as a 3D animated television show. And it honestly, it looks amazing. Like it looks it really, yeah, it looks really pretty. That's cool. Uh, they have like a totally new art style. Uh, it, it doesn't deviate too far from the original, but it looks great. Anyway, you want to talk about Resident Evil 4 Remake? <laughs> <laughs> Mercenaries mode. It drops. It's free. Uh, yeah. And I, I had a realization. So Mercenaries mode, for those who don't know, this was part of the original Resident Evil 4 is essentially it's almost its own game in some ways, but it's sort of a a extra add on version of RE4 where they really lean into the arcadey vibes of it. So you play in the original. It was Leon, Ada, Krauser and Hunk. More on him in a bit. (laughs) 
and basically you would choose a stage and there was like a version of either the village or the castle or the island um maybe one other level that i'm forgetting and you had a time limit and it was basically okay survive for the time limit and kill as many zombies as you can there are like power-ups on the ground for ammo you get more time when you kill zombies it was a lot of fun and what i realized my realization was that the first time i ever played resident evil 4 the original was at a friend's house and it was mercenaries mode so i didn't even know what the core game was i just thought this is what re4 was um and I and I was disappointed that Hunk did not play a larger role in the main story. <laughs> I I still to this day don't really know where Hunk came from. It's almost <laughs> as either, if honestly. It kind of feels like he showed up for the thrill of it. Like like everyone yeah. else is like in the story, and he's like, wait a minute, there are zombies where I'm, I'm showing up. I've been waiting for this. I'm there. Because yeah. <laughs> for those who don't know, Hunk is like this. Looks like uh, the pyro from TF2 meshed with Killzone. Yeah, he looks like the villains in. Um, oh my God, what was that? What was that? Is it Resistance? Oh no, no, Killzone. He, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it yeah. is Killzone. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, he looks like a villain in Killzone, but he's this like dude named Hunk, and his whole thing is that if you stun an enemy, you can do a melee attack. So famously, Leon's the roundhouse kick. He swoops in and snaps the zombie's neck, and yeah, it's all that has stuck with me my whole life. I'm like, who is brave enough to go for a zombie's head, like with your hands? <laughs> and in this one, it's almost as if he's done a magic trick because like the pose he does after it is like he's so cocky that he just pulled that off yes um and it's an automatic kill for any enemy like it just will kill them instantly if you get it to trigger yeah so anyway my first time playing resident evil 4 was in mercenaries mode and i think it for for both the original and the remake mercenaries mode shows it, it shows a lot of confidence in the system they've built where like the core campaign as we've said many times now is this like perfect tightrope walk of horror and action and then mercenaries mode is like what if it was just house of the dead what if it was like actually a a like veneerless score chase arcade game that is like a time trial bonus mode and it it, it almost could have been its own thing i'm actually really happy that they released this for free because this kind of feels like it almost reminds me of um the add-on to ghost of tsushima the legends which like yeah very much was its own game and kind of showed the versatility of that game's combat. Um, we had a lot of fun with that. It was a lot of fun to play co-op. Yeah. And I am so blown away by how good mercenaries mode is this time. So this time you play as Leon, Luis, Krauser and hunk. Ada is, is mysteriously absent this time. Yeah. Which I imagine she'll get added when, uh, the separate ways DLC gets added, which I imagine will be a paid thing. And I imagine that will also come with Wesker. Yeah. Because Wesker was playable in the original That's right, Mercenaries mode as well. And so I played a little bit. I, I've played in the village as every character. Uh, Leon is made to be sort of the the jack of all trades Mario character. <laughs> uh, oh, fuck. Don't do this to me. Oh, no. <laughs> He is. He's the well-rounded. He's got a shotgun, a pistol, and the stingray. Just sniper. like Mario. You're right. Like, <laughs> I mean, have you played Sparks of Hope? Um, <laughs> Honestly, I really need. I, I've seen that the modding scene is going wild with remake already. I yeah. gotta have all of his voice lines replaced with Charles Martinet. Oh my god, yes. So Leon, uh, and they gave everyone like starting equipment. So Leon has like every weapon, master of nothing, but kind of good at everything, and yeah. the roundhouse kicks. Um, then Luis is interesting because he's all about range. So he's given a red nine, which is pretty great, but also a sniper that is like 
he can see the heat of yeah, enemies. Yeah, it has it has what's called the bioscope. Uh, the bioscope. When you get it later in the main game. They also recommend just I guess this isn't really a spoiler, but the game recommends you finish the game before you play mercenaries because there are like characters and equipment that you haven't seen yet. So yeah, you know we're not going to go into story, but just a heads up that that's what this mode is. What I love about Luis is that his whole thing is is range. So his playstyle kind of matches his character where he's like always kind of on the move and like yeah. kind of a trickster. And his melee attack is like a Shaun of the Dead like bat. I love it so much. Like yeah. it's the the feeling of the wind up and the hit is so like they've done such a good job making all the characters feel really distinct. Yeah. And there's another thing they added where everyone has kind of a ultimate move. So if you've killed enough enemies, this like meter builds up. And then if you hit R3 and L3, at least on the PlayStation, um, it begins like this mode where every character has a unique ability. So with Leon, his pistol becomes like a one shot kill weapon. So like you can just destroy everyone with the pistol. Mm. Um, at least that's what I think it is. I honestly uh, didn't even realize what his ultimate did when I was playing as him. <laughs> uh, Luis, though, he just drops a big stick of dynamite. So the right. idea with, with Luis is like, you want to be always like far away from your enemies, but if you lure them all to where you are, you can drop that and then run away and, right. you know, get a huge, you know, massive, kill bonus yeah his melee is also pretty weak is the thing it, it has a really wide range which is cool because it's as you mentioned this like kind of big metal stick kind of thing yeah um but it takes a long time to wind up as you mentioned and it won't kill enemies usually yeah it's, uh, it's just sort of to get them off you exactly then you have krauser who krauser is one of the the big bads in the game itself Dude has an ex he has a bow and arrow that shoots explosive arrows <laughs> he has a submachine gun and he has, you know, grenades and a couple first aid sprays. He has a combat knife that is like extremely deadly. So his whole thing is he's all about melee. Yeah. Um, and then his ultimate is he grows the two zombie arms and can just destroy hordes of enemies like Kratos. Yeah. And the bosses also like when the chainsaw guy shows up, if you are using Krauser's ultimate, he'll go down in like one or two punches. Krauser to me feels like the best counter argument to a team obsessed with balancing their roster where it's yeah. like it is kind of fun to have a completely busted character i like, totally agree you yeah. can fall asleep while playing as krauser and still get s plus by the time the mission <laughs> is done and you know it he he's just such it, it's interesting to like it almost feels scary to play as him because he's like you know he's one of the villains and he has this sort of like intense energy to him mm -hmm. uh he kind of feels like you know i imagine the story goes into this but he sort of feels like this is what leon will turn into if he loses his humanity kind of right. thing yeah um and then you have hunk who is <laughs> hunk, <laughs> hunk is is in some ways the waluigi of the cast you have this automatic rifle with a, with a huge you know amount of ammo but you only have one weapon you have that and a knife and hunk's whole thing is that their ultimate is infinite ammo, which is incredible. So you can just suddenly like mow down hordes without worrying about reloading or anything. Yeah. And the melee attack kills instantly. So Hong kind of feels like the the like skill ceiling character where if you can nail the timing of the next snap, mm -hmm. you will be unstoppable. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of fun that they have like like Leon and, and Luis feel like you're playing a Resident Evil game. 
Krauser feels like you have inherited the version of a power star in Resident Evil and are just unstoppable. Yeah. And Hunk feels like a very specific play style. So I think they they kind of nailed having all these characters feel really unique and distinct from each other. Yeah, I really I love playing as Hunk. I think the biggest thing about his ultimate having unlimited ammo is not needing to worry about reloading, because what I have found in my experience playing mercenaries, which I've played a lot, played a lot of it already, uh, is, is that the thing that kills me more often than not is needing to reload. Like yeah. what, what will frequently happen is I'll get towards the upper echelon of, you know, either like the time limit or the enemy limit. I think there's 150 enemies in each of the stages. Um, and if you can take them all out without the time running out, then that's how you get S plus as a rank. Um, usually what I've found is that in in that kind of like later game, once I'm, you know, 100 enemies plus and I'm getting overrun by by zombies, uh, needing to reload will be the thing that kills me because as I'm trying to reload, I'll get attacked by one zombie and then I need to reload again because I got hit out of the reload animation and then I get hit by another zombie and then another one and another one and then you just don't get to reload and in instances where like you could be playing as Hunk, for example, and you literally only have the one weapon, if you can't reload, then you're just done. Like you can try and run away, but if you're crowded by, you know, 30 zombies at once like you're just fucked essentially um so being able to launch into an unlimited ammo mode really really helps that um, is hunk your favorite of, of the four i i think i think hunk is the most fun to play as yeah. um because it, as you're saying there is kind of a krauser adjacent like you could be unstoppable with hunk in some cases but there is a little bit of a skill there especially again with the reloading situation and only having one weapon but I, I think Leon is the one that like if I was to guess the people who are really taking mercenaries mode seriously will be playing as Leon. Right. Because that's like kind of the default. It's like if you could if you can get S plus with Leon, then you're good at Resident Evil 4 mercenaries, if I was to guess. Yeah. Um, but it feels like a power fantasy almost. It almost reminds yes. me of uh, do you play that game prototype. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, feels yeah. like you're it feels like a really good version of prototype. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the thing that I love the most about mercenaries mode that I was messaging you about is the fact that it's another way of unlocking the hand cannon. Yeah. Which uh, if you if you don't know about the hand cannon, the hand cannon is like the best unlockable weapon or one of the best. I, w- I would argue the best unlockable weapon in the game, which before mercenaries mode came out, you could only get the hand cannon which is just this like super, super, super powerful Magnum um, that if you upgrade it all the way, has unlimited ammo also. So you don't need to reload. The only way to get it before mercenaries mode dropped was by beating the game in professional mode, which is the highest tier of difficulty with an S plus ranking. And the only way to get an S plus ranking is by starting a fresh save file, which means you can't use any of your new game plus stuff. You have to start with like the default equipment, the default weapons. Everything is default. And you need to beat it in under five hours, uh, which I look, I like Resident Evil 4 remake a lot. I like the original Resident Evil 4 a lot. There's no way in hell I was ever going to do that. Like, I I just don't have the time for it. And truthfully, I don't think I have the skill level for it. That's I don't like think in, I would have uh, been able to do it. In FF7, the two ways to get a golden Chocobo are either the whole racing and breeding route or you can beat Omega Ruby, which I don't know if you even tried in our playthrough. Of I that. did not know. There are two optional, excuse me, not Omega Ruby. It's a a Ruby weapon. There are two optional, the weapons are essentially like Kaiju. And there are two weapons you don't have to fight that are basically there for bragging rights. Ruby weapon is in the desert. And in order to do damage to them, they will take zero damage unless two of your party are dead. (laughs) 
it is it is by far the hardest fight in the game. Oh my god! And all you get from beating it is an item you can trade in to get a golden chocobo, which gets you knights of the round. But you need knights of the round to beat the weapon. So it, it makes no. It's like just breed them. Just, there's a clear, there's a much easier option to yeah. getting that summon. So <laughs> on, on that there. note, the yeah. way you get the hand cannon now in mercenaries mode, if you don't want to do it the old fashioned way, which uh, I did not, is you need to get an S rank, just S. It doesn't even have to be S plus. An S rank on all three of the uh, current stages that exist in mercenaries mode, which is very easy if you've unlocked Krauser. If you have Krauser, <laughs> you could do that in maybe fifteen minutes. Like yeah. do all three stages in like fifteen minutes and Luis get the hand cannon. Almost kind of feels like hard mode in some ways. With I agree. Like yeah. he like, and that's cool though. I think it's like it's an added. Not that he's like weak, but it, he has such a specific play style. It's like okay, this is going to be a very different experience than Krauser, who's all about just getting in there and doing melee stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the, the thing about Luis also is like his thing is range, as you were saying, but the red nine is notably inaccurate. Like you really do need to be pretty close or standing completely still for those shots to land where you want them to. And even then there's so many zombies coming after you that it's kind of hard to do that. And especially if you bring Luis into like into the castle where the dudes have shields or the island where dudes have metal shields and you can't shoot through them with the red nine. Like you're just kind of fucked. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's really hard. It's really hard. But if you play as Krause, you get the hand cannon and uh, I have unlocked the hand cannon and I'm making my way through my third playthrough of, of the game with the hand cannon <laughs> with unlimited ammo now. And uh, boy, is that shit good. Love having the hand cannon. I still have to. I, I did want to play a little bit of mercenaries for this episode, but I haven't finished the main game yet. I definitely will. Uh, I've just been I, I'm like still about halfway through the castle. Um, so nice. I'll report back. So you're like really at the midpoint of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I imagine I'll probably be done at the end of the month. I've just also been playing a lot of Metroid Prime, which is our bonus this month. Yeah. And uh, man, more on that soon. This is your first time playing Metroid Prime, right? Yeah, I, I, I I'm in love. Brendan, I uh, <laughs> I think it might be my favorite Metroid game, like already. It's so fucking good. Um, like the I, remake I, is spectacular. Yeah, I uh, I'm really excited to talk about it with you. Like, I, I was excited to play it, but I didn't expect it to feel so. I mean, the remake I imagine helps with it, but it just feels like so modern, even in just mm. the design of it. Like I think the way it uses FPS is really really special. Um, yeah, and more on that first scene. person shooting <laughs> or not, just, not frames for a second uh, just to be yeah, clear <laughs> the way it uses uh, i guess just the first person perspective i should yeah, say yeah uh is really cool the sound design the music everything it's really 61 cool. frames per second <laughs> so ahead of its time <laughs> the frame rate dude the yeah. frame rate no i i think um we, we were talking a little bit about this off the show but i think i think the thing about that game the remake specifically that that they get so right about it is really the only things that they've touched are the graphics and the control scheme um so just like giving you normal twin stick control over over the over samus um and then also just making the game look prettier that's really all you needed to do like get it in widescreen have 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 the graphics better it's the one thing that's preventing me from saying like yeah you should use prime hack and the emulator is like this they they made the thing that the prime hack is like aspiring to be in some ways which mm -hmm. i i appreciate because ideally that's what i would want out of a port or a remake of something like this yeah but i i think um all i'll say for now in in fear of saying too much uh before that episode is even recorded is that <laughs> i actually think it might be the best metroid to begin with i think mean, if you've never played any metroid game 
I think the the remaster of Prime will really kind of explain why people love Metroid in a way that feels more akin to our modern understanding of games. Yeah, I think like obviously like the 2D side scrolling Metroidvanias are still very much popular, but I do think Prime can kind of unlock that. Like I think if you played Prime before Super Metroid, you're more likely to love Super Metroid than if you started there, in my mm. opinion. Yeah, um, I think you might be right, but that might be a hot take. I I, I await the ads. Um, so <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, I think we should wrap up. Yeah, I think so. Any, anything more about Hunk? Uh, I just, I looked it up while we were talking about him. Uh, it turns out he showed up in Resident Evil 2 initially. Did he? Yeah, uh, a, a mini game in Resident Evil 2 called The Fourth Survivor. So he showed up in a mini game. Yeah. Is there any other evidence of Hunk? What does Hunk even stand for? I don't know. That I can't find. That's what I've been looking for. What do you think it stands for? I don't know. I imagine the U stands for umbrella. Hazardous umbrella unit. Never uh, know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, into the cast online is where you can find us uh <laughs> join the discord review us on apple podcast tell a friend about the show if you like it um <laughs> I, I didn't even fully do it but go to wavelengths online if you want to hear that show and uh you know just look out for hunk look out for hunk you never know you never know where he's gonna be bye hunk but actually he's gonna be in a mini game <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Hunk is like someone's OC in Capcom. And they're like, can he show up here? And they're like, yeah, yeah, what's fine. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure, he sure, he sure. can be in the fourth survivor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, almost nothing is known about Hunk's history, even his real name. The earliest piece of information relating to him was that he received training in the military training center on Rockfort Island in 1996. <laughs> in only two years, Hunk proceeded to carry out a large number of successful operations, many of which he was the only survivor, earning him the nickname the Grim Reaper. Oh, my God. I mean, he has his name is Hunk. He doesn't need a nickname. He doesn't need a nickname. Yeah. He, yeah. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> bye everybody <laughs> I, was trying, I was thinking of making the acronym hunk how dare you give me a nickname but it didn't didn't work out it'd be like hadunk um hadunk hadunkin <laughs> duncan hunk donuts. i'm not al anymore i'm hadunk <laughs> <laughs> i'm not al anymore the name's hunk <laughs> Goodbye. Uncachino. <laughs> Everyone loves my Uncachino. <laughs> Break your neck for a Uncachino. <laughs> Soul survivor for Uncachino. You never know. We need a Uncachino. Oh, shit. What's his name? Uncachino. Uncachino. Goodbye. I, in a million years, never would have expected that the weirdest this episode got was literally right at the end and in no way related to the Mario movie. Yeah. The Mario movie was a very, like, yeah, you know, film as an adaptation could be something. Now we're like, Uncachino, Uncachino, Uncachino! We gotta get out of here. We gotta get out of here. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> Dunka, 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 dunka